Hello, and welcome to Ask Dr. Dawn. The opinions expressed in this program are those of the speakers, and this is a program intended for education and entertainment. It should not be construed as a substitute for a medical consultation. We're going to kick off with a couple of questions I received uh, this week. A very interesting email from the Cannabis Clinician List, who is interested in giving us a lecture about uh, the Patient's Guide to Medical Cannabis. I'll be reaching out to them and seeing if uh, we can get a speaker on that. I think that medical cannabis is definitely a topic of interest in my local area, but also, I believe, across the nation. And it's exciting to be in a time when when a new science is developing, and indeed we are actually getting some very good science out of this, and I love sharing that with you. Our next email comes from Vital in somewhere. Don't really know where they are, but uh, I, I guess Santa Cruz. Major Gum Periodontal Woes is the title here. Have you found particular home strategies for those with very sensitive gums, particularly around the upper back teeth? It's an outrage when dentists and periodontists propose taking several teeth out at a time for someone as young as I am uh, with beginning treatments plans well over uh, $10,000, not including implants. I've been using a brown mouth tonic and placing it with a Q-tip on the most sensitive area and alternating with an MMS, uh, I'm not sure what MMS means, uh, water mouthwash solution, and I'm open to other strategies. Well, first of all, Vital, I want to uh, thank you for bringing up the topic, because while you may be young, those of us who are older worry about dementia, and I just want to put it out there, folks. There is a strong connection between inflamed gums and dementia, and it's a very, very solid association. That's because inflammation fuels dementia. So we want the brain to be uninflamed, and as we age, that gets harder and harder to do just because our anti-inflammatory mechanisms deteriorate with age. Uh, The people who live the longest, by the way, those centenarians, when you look at their genetics and see what makes them different, or you look in their blood and see what makes them different, the difference is that they have more anti-inflammatory balance in their systems. They're better at turning off inflammation. And that means those of us who don't have super DNA have to be really careful with our teeth. So you need to get on top of this, and I'm glad that you're asking because I do think that, uh, you know, we're assuming that you do not have dental abscesses. If you do, then you probably then you may in fact need to have those teeth removed. If you do not have abscesses, and what you have instead is separation of the gum from the tooth, the so-called long in the tooth phenomenon, there's a lot you can do. Uh, first of all, we're going to talk about diet. Okay, your diet influences your microbiome, both the oral microbiome and uh, the gut microbiome, and a healthy microbiome is really key here. Really key, no alcohol and no sugar. Those are really important. You want to avoid starch, and 
eat a diet that's high in vegetables. This is extremely important. The other thing you need to do is eliminate oral antibiotics and mouthwash. If you're going to use antibiotics, when I say oral, I'm talking about sprays, mouthwashes, maybe I don't know what's in the mouth tonic, but if it's antibacterial, you want to rethink that. You really do. Uh, mouthwash as well, because it's hard on the microbiome. You want a good microbiome. It's going to climb up your esophagus and get into your mouth. Another thing I recommend is a water pick. You have to be sure that you clear food fragments so that the space, so that the gum can grow back. And you want to use the water pick on the gentle setting and you don't want to really add anything to it. Don't throw any tea tree oil or any other essential oils or anything like that. You're just trying to use the cleansing action of water. Now, I have done uh, a lot of plastic surgery rotations for a family for a family practice doctor, and I will tell you that when you have a wound, gentle debridement with gentle jets of water and just letting that water flow over the wound is very beneficial. In a, and essentially, that's what periodontitis is. It's a wound. And what you want to do is keep it clean and clean. And I would say two, if three times if a day if you can manage it, depending on whether you're working at home. But after every meal, you certainly want to get in there with the water pick. Uh, flossing is okay if you uh, if you stay on the teeth, but you want to be really careful not to irritate the gum and just go up and down on the tooth itself, and not. And that means if you have a tight occlusion, you don't snap that puppy down into the little tender healing tissue that's trying to grow back as you take the sugar and starch out of your diet, start eating a high-fiber, high-vegetable-based diet. Meat is okay, but you have to be careful because meat can get in there and pack into that hole, and that's highly inflammatory. So after meat, particularly like steak, uh, roast beef, uh, that you know, stringy chicken or stringy pork, you really have to get in there with a water pick. No excuses. It's costs a hundred bucks. You may even be able to find a used one on, you know, your your friendly neighborhood, the social media website. Uh, another thing that I recommend is a product called Dental Sidon. It's actually a toothpaste, and it contains both compounds that are pro good bacteria. And also it contains some of the bacteria that we want to see in that space between the tooth and the gum that in your case is damaged and essentially melted from inflammation. You have to stop the inflammation. And this plus just the water pick sort of things I'm talking about, that's how you're going to do it. And so I recommend that you be very careful with your diet. And as I've said, uh, this dental, it's dental sidon, D-E-N-T-A-L-C-I-D-E-N. It, uh, it is a product that I, I'm not you know, getting any money from them, but I do use it and it has helped me with my um, annoying uh, areas that were starting to deteriorate and worry me. So, I think it's a long walk back, and you'll have to be vigilant. 
but maybe if you really behave yourself, you can go back from periodontitis to gingivitis and back from there to healthy gums. Good luck to you. So it looks like we have an email from Liz in Pacific Grove. Let's open that up and take a look. Dear Dr. Don, I'm a 78 and a half, let's not forget that half, year old female who's confused about statins. Last year, my primary care physician said he didn't think I needed to be on a statin, that the possible side effects would abate, uh, would outweigh the benefit to me. This year, he seems to want me to be on a statin. To me, my numbers look about the same as they did last year. Uh, could you please describe the specific health data that would influence you to put a woman on my age on a statin, and which statin would you then suggest? I want to add that I have not had a cardiac event, and I have well-controlled blood pressure. Thanks in advance for any enlightenment that you can give me and for your very helpful program. Liz from Pacific Grove. Okay, Liz. Well, first of all, you are, let's see, 78 years old and you do not have a cardiac event. Uh, And assuming that you have no relatives who died before their 70s of cardiovascular disease, I'd be worried about a father uh, or any female up to the level of aunt or grandmother uh, who ha- died in their 60s of heart disease. And I'm not talking heart failure from rheumatic fever. I'm talking heart attack. That would be important. That's a risk factor. I'm also assuming you're not diabetic. You mentioned well-controlled hypertension. And of course, you didn't give me your lipids. But I'm going to tell you that if the total cholesterol divided by the high density cholesterol, the HDL, if that number is under four, given all these other things I've said, you're pretty low risk for dying prematurely of a heart attack. And my dear, you do have to die of something sometime. So at 78, maybe you're shooting for 88 or 90, maybe you're shooting for 108. Uh, but presumably you we, you want to talk about this risk-benefit thing. And the big risk for postmenopausal women who go on a statin is a lot of them become diabetic. And diabetes is really a big risk factor for heart disease, which is why probably, uh, despite the data in men, which is whom almost all of the research was done on, uh, non-smoking women, controlled hypertension, postmenopausal, regardless of cholesterol level, unless it's like 400 or something, no data that it actually prevents heart disease in this group, that the the event rate is the same, whether you're on a statin or not on a statin. Uh, and that's probably because the statins make some of them diabetic, which increases their risk. And the statins themselves uh, do have the potential for interfering with muscle function and interfering with brain function. and But it's this diabetes risk that is under-considered. Now, as to why your doctor said this one way one year and one way the next year, possibly what the doctor saw was an increase in your LDL that took you above 130. And I don't care about LDL in women. The data for that is poor. Uh, but if I'm in a tiebreaker situation, I might take a look at the coronary calcium score, which is a test you can get. It's a type of CT, so there is chest irradiation, but it's a very short CT, so not that much radiation. 
and it will tell you if you've got a calcified plaque. And that might be a a tiebreaker in a case where you're really being pressured and you want and you're just not sure, and you'd rather belt and suspenders the situation, and you don't have any family history of diabetes, and you're at a good body weight, and your diet is not a pro-diabetogenic diet, which means you're not a sugar hound, and you don't eat a bunch of starch, bread, sugar, uh, noodles, rice, etc. And if those criteria are met, you probably don't need it. I can't tell you anything more than that, and I hope that's been helpful. Our first story for the afternoon is, oh, well, let's see. It's evening now. We're past 6 o'clock. Intense exercise may actually increase your risk of colds. And there's lots of evidence showing that regular exercise reduces your risk of respiratory infections like colds, flu, and (laughs) COVID-19. But it turns out that very vigorous exercise may increase your risk of catching these things, uh, particularly the viral, the viruses. And we'll talk about that in a moment. Uh, we're, uh, there was a lot of flu activity in Australia this year, and that predicts how bad the U.S. flu season will be a lot of the time. Uh, apparently, we do have, do, did get the vaccine right. So if you haven't gotten the vaccine, I certainly in, encourage you to go do so. But as I said, how do you so- solve this paradox of exercise? Well, I'm going to appear to be digressing, but I'm telling you the answer in an indirect way. When I was in middle school, my history professor, Mr. Burns, taught us about the Greeks And he said that the Greeks espoused this idea of moderation in all things. Kind of a Goldilocks story, right? Not too hot, not too cold, not too hard, not too soft. Just right. Just the right amount of exercise. But excessive exercise cause in, in, let's say, a highly trained exercise or a healthy untrained individual who increases their activity, who really pushes during competition or is trying to get ready for a marathon, let's say, and is doing heavier training blocks than they're physically accustomed to, and also people with physically demanding jobs that really push them to their limits. The study that we're going to talk about was small, but it used blood, saliva, and urine samples from 11 firefighters before and 10 minutes after Uh, an intense exercise uh, routine that was designed to mimic wildfire fighting. These firefighters hiked over hilly terrain for 45 minutes in humid weather, wearing 44 pounds of wildland gear. Uh, I wouldn't walk for days. Anyway, the subjects had, when they were tested, in their urine, uh, saliva, and blood, fewer pro-inflammatory cytokines, things like your IL-10 and your IL-3, and higher levels of, uh, and fewer ceramides, and more antimicrobial peptides. Antimicrobial peptides are proteins that would fight bacteria. So this creates, this is essentially a greater susceptibility to infection. Other studies have shown a decrease in IgA in the not in the system, IgA is what 
is the antibody coming out of your nasal mucosa. They didn't do nasal swabs in this group, but previous studies looked at IgA levels in competitive divers and show like Olympic athletes and, you know, that level uh, and swimmers and has shown that after one of those competitive meets, there's a substantial drop in both the bloodstream and the nasal mucosa of the IgA. And IgA is what grabs those viruses. And the the pro-inflammatory cytokines also grab those viruses and help you fight them off. Now, part of the reason may be that during intense exercise, the body may want to reduce airway inflammation to help you breathe. So it's essentially, uh, there's a peripheral tissue uh, vasodilator that increases blood flow and improves oxygen delivery to the muscles during exercise. This compound is called opinorphin, and it goes up when the pro-inflammatory molecules go down. A next study would be to synthesize this and give it to people and look what happens to their pro-inflammatory molecules to determine that this is causal and not a third variable problem. Teaching a little scientific method there, slipping it in. But uh, it leads to unintended consequences. So you're breathing faster, you're opening up your airways, and you're breathing through your mouth. Now, your mouth does not have the protective IgA at the levels that your nose does. So when you breathe through your nose during exercise, you get fewer pro you you have uh, more protection. And that fewer pro-inflammatory molecules on patrol because of the these adaptive responses in exercise may set you up to breathe stuff into and deep in your lungs where it has a chance to attach to your tissues and infect you. It'll be uh, interesting to see how this research follows up, but in the meantime, I'm going to stick, as I always have, with the advice I got from good old uh, Fred Burns in middle school about moderation in all things. Let's talk about uh, 5-methyltetrahydrofolate and uh, major depressive disorder. Now, we have a problem with depression in our society. And there's about 31% of people that just don't respond to our drugs, which is very annoying of them, and we wish they would stop. But a study published earlier this year looked at the application of 5-methyltetrahydrofolate, methylfolate, uh, as a, in those people who had treatment-resistant, uh, medicine-resistant depression. And what they found is... Uh, and these were randomized, double-blind controlled studies, and then a follow-up open-label study. Both of them consisted of two 30-day phases. Patients had been diagnosed with major depressive disorder, had been categorized as treatment after two or more drugs taken for at least uh, four weeks. They were kept on whatever medicine they were on. It was a 60-day trial, and they were placed in three groups. One group got placebo, the second group got placebo for 30 days and then methylfolate, either at 7.5 milligrams or 15. That's a big dose. I normally give people uh, about 800 micrograms if they have a mutation that interferes with their ability to synthesize it. So this is a honking dose. And I've had patients who just randomly got this from psychiatrists and ended up blitheringly uh, 
anxious and uh, really disablingly uh, trapped for a few days in their house. So do not try this at home without getting a genetic test. These uh, people with an MTRR mutation, if you want to look that up uh, or check your 23andMe and run it through Genetic Genie, you might be able to find out if you have it. But that MTRR mutation means that you will seriously OD if you take this much methylfolate, and it'll act a little bit like uh, like a paranoia inducer. In both studies, the 15-milligram daily dose led to significantly higher response rates to the medication. In other words, the drug wasn't working. 32% of the time it worked in the treatment group versus 14% uh, over the next 60 days in the uh, placebo group. So essentially what this is saying is that if you're having trouble responding to a drug and you're not, you have no visible response, this seems to maybe sensitize the body and allow it to respond to these drugs, which are basically, it makes sense from a biochemical standpoint because these drugs work by preventing you from breaking down serotonin. That's not going to work if you can't make serotonin. And people who have this uh, mutation often have trouble making serotonin and dopamine. So they're depressed. You can't make your serotonin. If you fix that step in the serotonin biosynthetic pathway by giving the methylfolate, bam, they can make the serotonin. And so now the serotonin reuptake inhibitor actually has some serotonin to inhibit the reuptake of. So it's very logical that this would work in a certain subgroup of the population. So uh, they also looked at uh, 68 participants. They followed them, the responders, for a year. And they looked for, did they relapse? Did they recover? Did they stay in remission? And uh, what they found was 61% achieved remission during the study period. And that's a really good good finding and certainly indicating that we might want to look at this. Uh, Another study, not surprising because depression is also an inflammatory disease, but a post hoc analysis, which means they do the study, they've collected data that they don't initially look at, but then they go, huh, I wonder if, fill in the blank, in this case, they looked at patients with elevated body mass index, BMI, and elevated inflammatory markers, and surprise, they found that those were the ones that had the higher and greater response to the addition of methylfolate. This is something to be thought of in people who have depression, it's something to be asked uh, to the psychiatrist. If you're working with a psychiatrist, there are genetic tests that they can do that your insurance will cover. Otherwise, you're looking at uh, 23andMe and getting them to do your test runs somewhere between 150 and $200. And you can, and then the question is, well, is anybody gonna is anybody gonna steal my genetic data and do I care if they do? And you know, I as far as I'm concerned with our current technology, that ship has sailed. If the government wants your genetic data, they're gonna get it off of your star discarded Starbucks cup. So uh yeah. <laughs> it's uh no no place to hide there. We just talked about uh methyl 
tetrahydrofolate. Now we're going to talk about methyl tetrahydrofolate reductase status, and that's the that's the enzyme that catalyzes the that conversion of folic acid to 5-methyl tetrahydrofolate, and that's our body's active form. So we know that uh, the C677T variant in this can cause a decrease in the enzyme and thus de- less folate, and there are a lot of psychiatric disorders uh, associated with this besides depression, which we've already covered a little, Uh, bipolar disorder, schizophrenia, and autism. And uh, the following two cases illustrate the effects a folate deficiency can have on two siblings. So in the first case, this little boy had been exposed to methamphetamine, cigarettes, and opioids in utero. He had respiratory distress at birth. He was low birth weight, and he was in foster care for the first 21 months of his life. And he was diagnosed with a bunch of things, various developmental delays, ADHD, sleep apnea, and eventually autism. And he'd been on, by the time of this trial, 13 different medications that all had to be stopped either because they didn't work or because they had unacceptable side effects. And he finally had genetic testing at age seven and was found to have this uh, C677T MTHFR deficiency. And he was placed on 7.5 daily, uh, the dose that didn't work for adults. And within two weeks, uh, his adoptive family reported significant improvement in his behavior. Now, this isn't a double-blind placebo study, but here's a similar uh, separate case with a different foster family, the boy's sister. She followed a similar trajectory. She had fetal alcohol syndrome, low birth weight, was in the neonatal ICU because of respiratory distress, and she was placed in foster care at three months and adopted at 12 months. And at three, she was diagnosed with ADHD and uh, oppositional defiant disorder and uh, autism. And she'd been on 10 different medications. And at age five, she had genetic testing. And like her brother, she was started, this is a separate case, right? Separate thing, started on 7.5 milligrams daily of this methylfolate and noted uh, behavior improvements to the point that she was able to go to school. So this is a simple genetic test. If you or if you have a family member or you have a friend with someone who's autistic, Please mention this information to them. 3% of the population, sorry, 10% of the population carry a bad copy of MTHFR. It's located in a bad location on the on the chromosome and it gets mutated a lot. But you've got a good copy. If if 10% of the population however have one good copy. If 3% of the population more or less, and you know it depends on uh, to a certain extent on uh, the ethnic group, but I don't know the specifics there. You've got three percent who have two bad copies, and these are the individuals that we want to find if they're manifesting uh, symptoms, and that maybe they may be adults and showing up with treatment resistant depression. But this is a test that I. It's like vitamin D. You know, 20 years ago, nobody was, they didn't test for vitamin D and people with, with bone pain, adults with bone pain often respond beautifully 
to vitamin D uh, because they've got a level of like 15 and you get them up to 30 or 40 and their pain goes away. Nowadays, we've very quietly crept the normal level of vitamin D up to 30. It, 20 years ago, it was 20. And that's because we were wrong about the dose. We, we were giving you the amount that you needed not to uh, have rickets. We weren't giving you the amount that your body needed to be healthy. Now we've understood that uh, and we've changed our recommendations. Go us for being scientific enough to admit we were wrong. But I think this is another one where we are wrong. And I just want to encourage everyone to uh, encourage others to get this done, including talking to your own doctor about this and maybe asking to be tested for this mutation yourself. That'll probably made them, make them read about it and realize how important it is. We just talked about vitamin D. Let's talk about vitamin D in pregnancy. A study enrolled 502 healthy women, and they were enrolled between 12 and 16 weeks of pregnancy, and they were randomized to receive either 400, 1,000, or 4,000 units of vitamin D daily throughout the pregnancy. This is not too much. 4,000 is, is like certified safe by, uh, safe by the very conservative Institute of Medicine. And they measured the serum 25-hydroxy vitamin D level uh, at the first prenatal visit and one month before delivery and at birth and between three to five ages in the offspring. When the kids were three to five, they used something called the Brigant Screen, uh, B-R-I-G-A-N-C. I'll have to look that one up. Um, and they checked them at age three to five. What they found was uh, at birth, the vitamin D in the infant was highly correlated with the maternal vitamin D. That's not too, one month before delivery. That's not super surprise. A higher vitamin D level at three to five was associated with higher scores on neurological uh, assessment, regardless of socioeconomic factors. So here's one way that we can easily address what the social determinants uh, issue in terms of healthcare. We give them more vitamin D. Language scores were higher among children whose mothers received uh, the 2,000 or the 4,000 level. The neurologic development scores were better in the mothers who received uh, vitamin D supplementation. So I'd say that's a fairly good reason to get checked for vitamin D. In adults with autoimmune disease, I tell them to get their levels up to 80 on that 25-hydroxy vitamin D. In people who are uh, just looking to be healthy, I say 40 to 50, not just 30. Uh, I think 40 40 to 50 is really the sweet spot because if you go into the uh, if you go into a day, uh, out of daylight savings time, let's call it, and as the planet result, as the uh, Earth turns and the planet revolves around the sun, uh, we end up with fewer uh, fewer rays in the atmosphere that can create vitamin D. Such that right now you can't make vitamin D if you're not taking a supplement. Your levels are dropping. If you if you start out high enough. It won't matter if they drop because you'll still stay, stay in the healthy range. Uh, but I always take vitamin D, and particularly in the winter, I work hard to make sure that I... Time for one more study before the next break. 
flavonoids have long been recognized for their antioxidant potential. And uh, tobacco smoking, yeah, you've heard about this. And secondhand tobacco smoke exposed the body to multiple harmful compounds, nicotine and its metabolite, cotinine, which are impaired, which are associated with increased inflammation in the body and impaired immune function. So this study looked at the relationship between flavonoid intake, that's fruits and vegetables for the layperson, and serum cotinine levels in former and current smokers. And they also looked at the effects of firsthand and secondhand smoke. So they, they evaluated dietary flavonoid content from uh, 24-hour diet recalls, and they, they did blood samples to assess this metabolite, this metabolite of cotinine. Uh, levels greater than 10 were considered indicative of significant tobacco exposure. And uh, the, so guess what? The higher your flavonoid level, the faster you broke down that cotinine and got rid of this toxin in your system. And of the different groups examined, the anthrocyanidin group had the largest impact. That's your blueberries, your blackberries. Uh, basically, George Carlin said, "Why is there no blue food? Where there, there's there's enough there's blue blue food out there, George, but we're all scarfing it up because we're in the know. Berries, particularly the blue ones, are really great for you and very helpful for those exposed to secondhand smoke." Uh, and isoflavoids and flavones, well, soy. So if you can, if uh, you can get your kids to somehow consume blueberries and soy, uh, even if they have a smoking parent. And by the way, uh, smoking parents uh, going outside to smoke and then coming back in, uh, they're still going to be exhaling uh, cotinine and not and nicotine for several hours before, and they'll go back out and smoke again. And so the kids are being exposed to secondhand smoke if the parent in the household smokes. And it's amazing how many kids' chronic ear infections clear up when the parents divorce or separate. Not suggesting that as a treatment, it's just a clinical observation. It really does matter uh, if mom or dad smokes. So here's a a little bit of news you can use. Uh, This is related to anyone who's having to take opiates. Perhaps they've had surgery. Uh, Perhaps they're dealing with a severe chronic pain issue. Uh, And the most difficult side effect when we hospitalize someone and have to give them these medications like morphine is constipation. And in older patients, it can be they're flat on their back. They've got a fracture. Uh, it's often very difficult to treat. We've thought of it as uh, primarily a peripheral event. In other words, the effect, the oral, uh, the opioids are interfering with the function of the gut, not a central event, but the actual gut itself. So in this study, patients were given a very low dose of oral naloxone. Now, naloxone is what's in Narcan, but it has to be given by injection or nasal uh, spray because it is destroyed. Uh, it doesn't absorb across the stomach and it gets destroyed in the gut, but not before it helps with the constipation. They were given very low doses, like four or two milligrams, three times a day. And 
they were tracked for constipation. And these were patients on a stable dose of opioids who were constipated. They weren't necessarily in the hospital. All patients who got the oral naloxone had some improvement in their bowel frequency. The ones who were on high doses of opiates did get enough reversal of their anesthesia to notice it. Uh, But the ones who were on medium to lower doses actually did not, which is kind of counterintuitive. There is a very, very expensive drug called Relistor, which is given to people who are on opioids and have constipation. It's a local opioid blocker for the gut that doesn't get absorbed. But hey, if we can use a cheap generic instead of an expensive drug and make it work, well, you can be sure I'm going to be trying that when I have a persistent, stubborn case of constipation and someone who needs to be on pain meds. Our next story is about studying drugs, the so-called nootropics. You know, as we get into uh, final exam time, a lot of people are tempted to take a little something, maybe some Adderall or some Ritalin. You know, those pills are given widely to kids with ADHD, but they also make their way into the shadow economy and are available on most camp high school and and uh, college campuses, if you know who to ask. So in this study, these stimulant drugs were tested to see, do they really boost brain power? And students and workers from industries like tech and finance take these medicines thinking they're going to improve their concentration and their ability to get things done. But actually, if you test this subjectively, it, it... probably backfires. The drugs seem to make people slightly worse at solving problems, not better when you uh, do a placebo trial. So it's an interesting study. They used something called the knapsack task. Uh, So participants had to work out which items to put into a backpack. And the idea was to maximize the value, the economic value of the items, without exceeding the carrying weight of the backpack. And there were several different trials of different difficulties with different weight limits and different lists of items. And they could put take the items and put them in and then weigh the backpack. And it was a timed test. So the participants were, the same people visited the lab on four different days. And on each day, they were given either a placebo pill or one of the drugs. The people, the participants didn't know and the experiments didn't know what they were handing them out. And what the people who were scoring them found was that participants achieved slightly worse end results on the task after taking the drug. The drugs, in fact, did not impair people's ability to find an optimal solution, but the participants managed this in in about half the trials, whether they took the drugs or the placebo pills, but they did cause a drop in the value of the participants' knapsacks across the trial. And this was mainly by making non-optimal solutions worse. So what was striking to the people doing the study was how the drugs changed the way people attacked the task. And this is something when I do dementia testing, I will also say, uh, if you really pay attention, how a person goes about attacking or uh, addressing the task really deteriorates first 
as people start start to develop dementia. In this case, the participants spent much longer working on their knapsacks. They had about four minutes to do it, but if they thought they had a good solution, they could turn it in sooner. They spent longer working on their knapsacks. They were about 50% slower. The extra time was spent being indecisive, moving items in and out of the knapsacks. It was about a 9% loss of productivity when they had taken one of the study drugs. One of the researchers said it was like they were trying to solve a jigsaw puzzle by randomly throwing pieces in the air. Was their anxiety up? Well, the authors think that the drug made people more motivated and helped them put more effort into the task, but this was canceled out by the fact that the drugs decreased the quality of the efforts. They tried harder, but they became less competent. How much the drugs impaired performance seemed to depend on how good the person was without them. So this is really spooky, folks. The star performers during the placebo uh, sessions actually fell to the bottom when they had taken the drugs. A survey of 6,500 college students reported that 14% of them had used the drugs for non-medical reasons, like studying. Isn't working. The stimulant uh, shortage that we're currently experiencing is probably a blessing in disguise. Hopefully, people will be able to discern, I would think, a 10% loss of effective problem solving would be something that a lot of people might actually notice if they paid attention, but they certainly noticed it uh, in this study. Toddlers don't need formula. Guess what? There's a new product out there being marketed to the public, toddler formula. It's a transitional beverage for young children from 12 months to 36 months, basically a gateway drug for the fast food industry, if you ask me. Before this, babies went from breast milk or formula to cow's milk and baby food, or small bits of properly chopped up adult grown-up food, which is just fine, by the way. On observational studies, if you just keep them on breast milk and sit them down at the table with the folks in a baby chair and give them tiny bits of actual food, cut to the size that they aren't going to choke on it and let them struggle with getting it into their mouth, those babies actually develop their eye-hand coordination far more quickly and their pincer grasp, which are marks of, would you believe it, neurological uh, coordination and neurological development. So actually giving your baby little bits of non-chokeable food like a pea to to chase around their tray and try to get into their mouth is probably a good idea. Toddler formulas provide no nutritional advantage, uh, the American Academy of Pediatrics says. Also, they may be more dangerous. Infant formulas are subject to tight regulations, but the regulations for toddler formulas are much looser. There's really no evidence that these fill any gap in their nutrition. It's an unnecessary expense. It's being pushed very hard right now, pushed almost as hard as Medicare Advantage. So I had to, having talked about that last week and talking about it again every week until this deceptive marketing stops, uh, people are being strong-armed into signing up for Medicare Advantage. And in many cases, they will not be able to leave and they will have allowed their Medicare to be permanently privatized, which is a seriously bad idea. 
So I'm going to pick up this call. Hello, this is Dr. Motika. Hello, this is Smith, avid listener, and again, um, wish you a happy new year. Well, hello. And um, what uh, prescription drugs that can kill your memories? Uh, Well, there's lots of prescription drugs that can Mm -hmm. uh, interfere with cognition. And, of course, one of the basic aspects of cognition is memory. But, you know, there's also alertness. Uh, probably one that the uh, the ones I think I'll start with, uh, Aline, are the ones that are over the counter. And those are antihistamines mm. and sleeping aids. So, mm-hmm. actually, there's quite a lot of overlap. Many of the sleeping aids that you can buy over the counter are antihistamines. Uh, also, the antihistamines are used... Uh, like bonine and dramamine, those are antihistamines. They're used for motion sickness, but they're quite sedating. And uh, there is some evidence, comes out of England, where antihistamines are not over-the-counter. They're prescribed, and because they have the National Health Service in England, they know what drugs people got. They They know everything they get. So they showed a strong correlation over time with... Ever, with ever having used uh, antihistamines and dementia, but particularly using antihistamines after 50. There seemed to be a real strong correlation. I'm never sure with a study like this if it's just that the pre-dementia, the people are already starting to deteriorate mentally, so they're taking these as a sleep aid. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so... Or, and so it's the dementia that's causing the antihistamines rather than the antihistamines causing the dementia. That's the problem when you make an association. You never really know if there's causality there or what the linkage is. However, uh, pain medications, many of the pain medications can adversely affect cognition, uh, something you might not ex- uh, expect. Some uh, of the drugs that are antihypertensives in some individuals uh, the beta blockers in particular can af- can affect cognition real time uh, and uh, drugs for uh, urinary uh, issues so there are a number of uh, drugs that are given to uh, women who have urinary incontinence they, they, or their bot- bladders just hyperactive so you'll give them a drug so that they don't wet themselves or they don't le- you know it, there's two kinds of leakage, right? There's the one where you stand up or cough and you leak, and there's the one where right. you hear water running and you suddenly no. have to go. And that urge incontinence is treated with drugs that definitely can have an effect on cognition. Mm. The, the, these drugs are what we call anticholinergics. Mm. And acetylcholine is, in fact, the neurotransmitter of memory. So any drug that has an anticholinergic effect can potentially steal your brain, as you started, as you put it initially. And besides vitamin D, you mentioned um, any other supplements that uh, help prevent memory loss. Well, I'm really looking carefully at the data on um, a type of mushroom called lion's mane, Mm. and. Uh, in fact, I just had some fried up the other night. It was delicious. But uh, we have a lovely we have a lovely place, a mushroom store over on Laurel Street in Santa Cruz. It's at Laurel and Center. And if you haven't been in there, 
Uh, I highly recommend their Lion's Mane Mint mm. Tea, which is a cognitive, supposed to be a cognitive enhancer. And whether it's a cognitive enhancer or not, it's pretty delicious. So, I'll write that down on my do it list. Yeah, you I'd might want to. You did mention this previously. Yeah, and they've got a little. They've got a little tea bar now and uh, they sell powdered mushrooms and so you might want to just score yourself some powdered lion's mane my friend absolutely well we've come to the end of the hour so i'm going to wish you happy holidays and thanks for the call thank you bye-bye well that's about all for this week's podcast please go to askdrdawn.com for news about our future plans or follow my tweets at at AskDRDawn. For now, this is Dr. Dawn saying so long and stay healthy. Ask Dr. Dawn is brought to you by Jiva Media. Production and editing by Charles Mansky. Music by John Scoville.